For the first time in American history, one of our two major parties has selected a woman as their nominee for president. Actually, that's not true, Rachel Maddow. It's the opposite of true. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why I came I here. I got the feeling there's something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Not scared, but a little and angry. I'm I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Oh, clowns and jokers yes, everywhere I'm today. Stuck in from Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM, people-powered radio in L.A., up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove, in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster, in Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM in Columbus and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota, not to mention streaming coast to coast and around the globe on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, Radio Monterey, and yes, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week on Radio Sputnik. Fine affiliates all, fine listeners all, you have found the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me, maybe not you and other people on Twitter, but uh, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, it is uh, election day, and generally on election day, I try to not not talk about elections. Let people vote. We can pick up elections. We can pick up politics and everything else the next day. Uh, today, I have to make a bit of an exception, at least in part concerning the elections that are going on. Uh, voters are, in fact, at the polling places now for the last big primary day of the year. Uh, on Tuesday in California, New Jersey, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, and New Mexico. We will, of course, have complete reported results of those contests, at least as complete as they can possibly be on the day after an election, on tomorrow's broadcast, including even those reported results from New Jersey, where they still hate their own voters so much in the entire state, the entire Garden State, still forces voters on Election Day to use 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting systems across that entire state. And by the way, really old ones, old ones that have been hacked over and over again in seconds time amongst the oldest in the country when it comes to these unverifiable touchscreen systems. That's what they still use in New Jersey. So whatever those results are, at least in New Jersey, that's what they will be. Whatever they are reported as, on Tuesday night, that's pretty much how they will stay. No questioning election results in New Jersey, voters. Got it? The computers will decide that one for you. Um, anyway, we'll have uh, all of the results on our on our next thrilling broadcast. But on yesterday's show, we spent some time discussing what a disservice to the electorate that it would be for the corporate mainstream media, frankly, anybody in the media for that matter, to announce that Hillary Clinton 
was the presumptive Democratic nominee as soon as those polls closed in New Jersey, where Hillary Clinton is expected to do very well on Tuesday. Uh, We discussed how neither Hillary Clinton nor Bernie Sanders were likely to have enough pledged delegates after this last big contest of the year. Uh, Likely they neither were likely to have enough pledged delegates to win a majority of the available delegates, including the delegates, the super delegates, those so-called party insiders and so forth who who don't cast their vote until the end of July. So no matter what happens in California, New Jersey, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana and New Mexico, uh, it won't be until late July at the convention that superdelegates actually cast their votes. And unless Bernie Sanders decides on his own to drop out of the race, we won't know who actually wins the nomination until July 25th, when those superdelegates actually get around to casting their vote. Now, casting a vote is an actual process. It's a thing that happens. It's somewhat different than talking to someone in the media, than saying out loud who you plan to support, who you plan to vote for. And so when we were talking on yesterday's show about the idea that it would be outrageous for the media to come out, declare Hillary Clinton the presumptive nominee uh, when the polls closed in New Jersey, that was even when there were still going to be people at the polling places in uh, uh, California and uh, North Dakota and South Dakota, and Montana and New Mexico and so forth. Uh, th- this would be, you know, after New Jersey closes because it's on the East Coast when the corporate media uh, was planning to announce that Hillary Clinton had enough pledge delegates and apparent endorsements from unpledged superdelegates to sew up the nomination for her party. Well, no sooner did we get off the air yesterday from yesterday's program that AP made it clear they weren't even going to wait for anybody's vote to be cast on Tuesday, much less out here in California, where we have 475 pledged delegates and some 18 million voters uh, who, you know, kind of want to vote in this election. AP did not bother to wait for anybody to vote on Tuesday in California or New Jersey or New Mexico or North Dakota or South Dakota, New Mexico or Montana, much less Washington, D.C., where, by the way, voters there won't vote until next week in the final uh, nominating contest of the cycle. That's on, uh, in case AP hasn't noticed, that's on June 14. That's when uh, Washington, D.C. will get to cast their vote. And nonetheless, AP could not wait for any of that. As soon as we got off the air, uh, before I was even able to post yesterday's program at bradblog.com, AP sent out a breaking news alert. Quote, AP count. Hillary Clinton has commitments from delegates needed to become presumptive Democratic presidential nominee will be first woman to top major party ticket. Of course, AP does not know that because the votes of those superdelegates are not actually cast until the end of July. AP then offered this breaking news uh, tweet. They said Clinton holds off challenge from Sanders to clinch delegates needed for nomination. Really? Is that what she did? Great news. Nobody out here in California needs to show up and vote at all on Tuesday or in New Jersey or New Mexico or in North Dakota, South Dakota, New Mexico or Montana, much less next week in Washington, D.C. No bother. No worries. Nothing to it's done. It's over. NBC News followed just minutes thereafter. Hillary Clinton has hit the number of delegates needed to clinch the Democratic nomination, NBC News projects. Well, no, actually, she hasn't. Uh, 
Then a few minutes later, AP tweeted, Breaking Washington AP, Clinton campaign calls AP count, quote, important milestone. So AP calls the race, they get Clinton uh, responding to their call of the race, and AP then gets another breaking news out of it to underscore the fact that Hillary Clinton is the uh, winner of the Democratic nomination. No need for anyone to vote. No need for Hillary Clinton voters to support, to, supporters to vote. No need for Bernie Sanders voters to come out uh, and, and vote. It's over. It's done, right? And then minutes later, there was a fundraising appeal that was emailed to Hillary Clinton's supporters via email, quoting that original uh, uh, announcement from AP. So see how this all works together. Now, that doesn't mean that Hillary Clinton was in cahoots with AP. And as a matter of fact, to her credit, to her and her campaign's credit, they did try to tell folks that it was still very important for voters to vote on Tuesday. They're still trying to get out the vote. They were still trying to get out the vote despite AP's announcement, which would frankly uh, dampen the vote and basically tell 18 million voters in the state of California alone, where 475 pledged delegates are still at stake, not to mention Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, South Dakota, North Dakota and Washington, D.C., that their votes don't matter. So uh, CNN, by the way, they jumped in a bit later to report uh, via a breaking news alert. Hillary Clinton clinches Democratic nomination for president, according to CNN's delegate and superdelegate count. The first woman to be a major party's nominee, except she is not. Not until she's actually nominated. Now, this is true no matter who you support, no matter whether you're a Bernie supporter or a Hillary supporter. It's also true if you give a damn about Democratic politics in California and if you give a damn about control of the uh, uh, U.S. Senate for Democrats. Because out here in California, we're also voting to fill Barbara Boxer's uh, U.S. Senate seat because she's retiring. And uh, turnout could have a very serious effect on who actually wins the, uh, uh, the the primary, the top two primary out here in California, which can either go to, uh, well, there's 34 candidates on the ballot. A few of them are Democrats. Uh, if two of those Democrats are the top two vote getters, then it will be two Democrats versing uh, against each other in uh, in the fall, in November. And there is a whole bunch of other races for U.S. House that are also affected by turnout. But, uh, you know, so never mind waiting for Tuesday to announce uh, <laughs> that uh, Hillary Clinton was a presum- presumptive nominee. They had to do it. They did it on Monday. That despite Bernie Sanders, who noted last week uh, that superdelegates will not cast their votes until the end of July. So explaining to reporters that nobody will have clinched the nomination until then. But AP just went ahead and did it anyway on Monday. And uh, take that, voters. Take that, voters. AP and NBC News says your votes are not needed at all. I I just it's, it's amazing to me. And I actually had people when I was railing about this on the Twitters last night uh, saying, oh, well, it's because your candidate didn't win. A, they have no idea who my candidate is or isn't. B, I don't care who uh, actually wins or doesn't. I don't support uh, candidates. I support voters, period. Now, as the L.A. Times uh, reports, just in case you think I'm the only uh, person concerned about what this does to voter turnout and how disrespectful this is to voters, uh, the L.A. Times reports that uh, voting data specialist Paul Mitchell 
said he expected people to avoid the polls in California on Tuesday because of the Associated Press's Monday announcement that Hillary Clinton had secured enough support to become the presumptive nominee. That could play a significant role in down-ticket races, L.A. Times said, including whether two Democrats get the majority of votes in the race to replace U.S. Senator Barbara Boxer. L.A. Times notes that the California voting rolls have grown by a record amount, almost 650,000 new voters in just the last six weeks, in the final six weeks of registration. Three-fourths of them were Democratic voters. So, by the way, I'm not suggesting I know Bernie Sanders doesn't want, uh, uh, you know, people to uh, think that Hillary Clinton is the presumptive nominee. But I don't think Hillary Clinton wants people to think that either. Now, the AP could have reported, you know, based on uh, superdelegates that we've spoken to, if the election were held today, if the nominating uh, convention were held today, Hillary Clinton would have enough to clinch. They could do it that way, but that's not how they did it. They went out and they basically said, it's clinched. And all of the other media followed. It's clinched. It's done. It's over. As uh, the uh, voting data specialist Paul Mitchell said, as quoted in The New York Times, uh, with AP's announcement, voters will be bombarded with the news that the race has been called for Clinton. He said, quote, it's all going to be built upon the concept that the race is over. This is going to pop the balloon of what was potentially an extremely high poll uh, voter turnout. The total sum of all Democrat votes is going to be uh, lower, Mitchell said. Now, we don't know. I don't know if that's going to turn out to be true. And in fact, I went to the polling place today and it was very busy, very crowded. The poll workers said uh, that it had been busy all day long. That's good news, Uh, especially out here where we've got these unbelievably complicated uh, systems. Uh, More on that in a moment. Um, But I've also been getting reports from other people around Los Angeles, the largest voting jurisdiction in the nation, that things are uh, have been very brisk all morning. So uh, hopefully it hasn't dampened the turnout. But who knows what it would have been had not AP and the rest of the media came out and misinformed. You had one job, people in the media, one job, inform them, don't misinform them. How hard is that? Apparently it's very hard. The Sanders campaign put out a statement, said it is unfortunate that the media in a rush to judgment are ignoring the Democratic National Committee's clear statement that it is wrong to count the votes of superdelegates before they actually vote at the convention this summer. They said Secretary Clinton does not have and will not have the requisite number of pledged delegates to secure the nomination. She will be dependent on superdelegates who do not vote until July 25 and who can change their minds between now and then. That includes more than 400 superdelegates who endorsed Secretary Clinton 10 months before the first caucuses and primaries and long before any other candidate was actually in the race. Sanders uh, completed their statement saying our job from now until the convention is to convince those superdelegates that Bernie is by far the strongest candidate against Donald Trump. That is his right to do. It is an uphill battle. We'll see if he can or can't do it. But don't misreport the facts. CNN even had uh, someone back in April uh, from the DNC. So, do we have that clip nearby? Yes, Des, go ahead. Luis yeah. Miranda, who is the DNC communications director, said uh, this. Superdelegates, I think one of the problems is the way the media reports it. Any night that you have a primary or caucus, the media lumps in superdelegates that they've basically polled because they just call them up and say, who are you supporting? 
they don't actually vote until the convention, and so they shouldn't be included in any count on primary or caucus night, because the only thing you're picking on primary and caucus nights are the pledged delegates based on the vote. But what about uh, when we do, so our, to- when we do our totals, you think it's okay to include? Not yet, because they're not actually voting. Very interesting. The DNC itself saying, don't include superdelegates in the totals to cable networks like our own. So, of course, then they turn around and do it anyway. The DNC goes on, uh, CNN says, don't do it. CNN says, okay, we'll do it. Now, CNN should do what they want, should do what they think is uh, uh, best for the voters. I find it difficult to believe that uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, the, the historic moment that she is the nominee, is the best thing for voters when she is not yet the nominee. And uh, millions and millions of voters have not even been able to head to the polls when they made this announcement. It's just unbelievable to me. Robert Costa, excellent reporter at The Washington Post, uh, right after this announcement, he was at a a San Francisco rally for uh, a Bernie Sanders rally, says Bernie Kratz lash out at the press for calling nomination for Clinton. Unbridled fury about the media and the Democratic establishment rippled through a crowd of Bernie Sanders supporters here on Monday following reports that Hillary Clinton had clinched the nomination, the Democratic presidential nomination. As thousands gathered on the lip of San Francisco Bay on a cold, foggy night, there were angry shouts as people thumbed through news stories on their phones, many of them turning to each other in exasperation to read aloud articles to fellow rally goers. Many of the people who were spread out on the grass said they are far from ready to see Sanders cede the nomination to Clinton. There were urgent calls for him to fight on to the DNC in Philadelphia. And uh, dozens of people interviewed by Washington Post were deeply bitter about news organizations which they said had called the race too soon. Travis Fox, 31, said it was disgusting, absolutely horrible to hear. Jacob Chase, 50, said, how can you call this on the eve of the California primary? Jennifer Larson, uh, who works in biotech, uh, she said uh, she was sad as she walked to the event uh, Monday under the shadow of the Golden Gate Bridge, seeing the evening news alerts buzzing in her pocket. She said, you know what? I'm not even a big Bernie person. I don't think what Bernie wants to do is really possible to do, but I think he should see this through. He should get that chance. We need to start recognizing in this country that everyone has a voice, she said. Older and younger people alike were saying this to the Washington Post at the Bernie Clinton, uh, Bernie Clinton, Bernie Sanders rally. Uh, Bernie Sanders himself said, I should point out to all of the Democratic delegates going to Philadelphia in every instance, we beat Trump by far larger margins than does Hillary Clinton. There is no objective observer, none who will deny that our campaign has the energy and grassroots activism that no other campaign has. He said Republicans win when people are demoralized, when they give up on politics. Progressives and Democrats win when people are animated and they are prepared to fight. And that is what this campaign is all about, said Bernie Sanders. And that is true. When people are demoralized, they don't turn out. So is it any wonder that there was a poll released last week from who? Oh, look, conducted by the Associated Press finding that 90% of voters lack confidence in the country's political system. 40% went so far as to say that the two-party structure is seriously broken. Gosh, I wonder where they got that idea, AP. Anyway, we'll take a break and not talk elections uh, right after this. Just had to get that out. 
Full election coverage tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Uh, we have discussed vaping, sometimes known as e-cigarettes, on several occasions on this program, with nearly half a million deaths a year in the U.S. alone caused by uh, smoking tobacco cigarettes and smoking rates continuing to plummet now thanks in no small part to e-cigarettes. You'd think, you would think that Democrats and anti-tobacco advocates would be encouraging their use, the use of vaping and e-cigarettes to uh, help quit smoking. But as we've discussed on this show several times, they are doing quite the opposite, making it harder for smokers to quit smoking by making it harder for vapors to vape. And now, with new onerous FDA regulations about to be imposed on the vaping industry, that industry may well soon be fighting for its own life, ironically enough. Oddly, after, uh, uh, well, both pharmaceutical industry, Big Pharma, and Big Tobacco are both now supporting these new FDA regulations and mom and pop vape shop uh, owners, which currently uh, is the largest segment of the industry in the U.S., as well as uh, vaping equipment and e-liquid e-liquid manufacturers. They argue that these regulations are going to cost millions of dollars for the federal approval of every single flavor of e-liquid, every nicotine level for that juice and, and every battery, every tank, every mod and and other innovation in the uh, vaping industry before any of those items can actually be sold on the market. Uh, this is all sort of happening underground. Not a lot of people are talking about it, so I'm trying to talk about it. All of that, by the way, despite groups like the UK's Royal College of Physicians recently begging regulators to encourage the use of vaping as a way to help smokers quit smoking and save lives rather than discourage it. As the uh, Royal College of Physicians recently wrote, quote, in the interests of public health, it is important to promote the use of e-cigarettes as widely as possible as a substitute for smoking in the U.K. So why are both Democrats and supposed anti-tobacco advocates opposing the use of this new life-saving technology, which has led millions, including myself, by the way, by way of full disclosure, uh, to give up smoking altogether, in my case, literally overnight after decades, uh, in favor of much safer e-cigarettes, which can, but don't necessarily have to, include the addictive nicotine, but none of the deadly carcinogens and chemicals that are found in tobacco cigarette smoke. Over at the American Media Institute, in a recent article headlined, Democrats work with big tobacco and big pharma to choke the vaping industry, Journalist Monica Showalter recently wrote about the unlikely political coalition behind the anti-vaping movement. She writes, 
Meet the Strange Bedfellows Against Vaping, Drug and Tobacco Companies, Health Advocates, and Democratic Lawmakers. A convergence of interests among these four lie behind the Food and Drug Administration's announcement on May 5 that e-cigarettes will be regulated as rigorously as tobacco beginning in August. I would argue, by the way, they'll be regulated far more rigorously than tobacco, but that's just a side note for the moment. Uh, She writes, vaping advocates say the cost of FDA approvals will bankrupt an industry that might vastly improve public health. This spring, she says, a major study from the Royal College of Physicians, the British equivalent of the Office of the Surgeon General, found e-cigarettes to be 95% less harmful than cigarettes. Drug companies favoring the FDA rules, usually big backers of Democrats, have huge sums invested in prescription smoking cessation drugs covered in many cases under the Democrat-passed Affordable Care Act, which they helped shape. They now face stiff competition from readily available e-cigarettes. And similarly, tobacco companies left flat-footed by the growth of the upstart vaping market also support the, the FDA rules as they look to shore up market position in both tobacco and now e-cigarettes, which those tobacco companies are now getting into. The result is a divide among the political left, and it's resulted in many folks like me, I gotta say, scratching our head, wondering what the hell these Democrats must be thinking when big tobacco favors these regulations against an industry that could otherwise put them, big tobacco, out of business altogether in a few years. And then you add in the fact that Big Pharma, as uh, Show Walter notes in her report, also stands to gain from shutting down the vaping industry so that they can retain their control of the multi-billion dollar smoking cessation industry through their own nicotine products. Uh, as Show Walter writes, pharmaceutical giants such as Pfizer, Novartis, Johnson & Johnson and GlaxoSmithKline spent $100 billion to develop rival smoking cessation products such as nicotine patches, gums, inhalers. Yes, they make nicotine inhalers, these uh, drug companies do. Uh, and unregulated e-cigarettes have been eating into their market share. Thus, Big Pharma is supporting the FDA regulations on vaping products along with Big Tobacco and along with Democrats and supposed anti-smoking advocates. Showalter cites a number of big-name Democrats, such as the uh, the now late Democratic New Jersey Senator Frank Lautenberg, uh, Massachusetts's uh, Senator Ed Markey, Ohio's Sherrod Brown, Connecticut's Richard Blumenthal, all of whom received huge contributions from Big Pharma just as they came and big, I mean, big contributions just as they came out loudly for anti-vaping restrictions and these FDA regulations on vaping that I am convinced will cause tens of thousands, if not millions, to unnecessarily die here in the U.S. alone. Quoted in Showalter's article was, A, myself, uh, based on our earlier uh, programs on this topic, as well as Jonathan H. Adler of Case University, uh, who has written about the strange bedfellows at work in this matter in a study titled Baptists, Bootleggers, and E-Cigarettes. Originally published at Case Western and set for an updated version soon at the Yale Journal of Regulation, Jonathan Adler is a professor of law and director of the Center for Business Law and Regulation at Case Western Reserve University School of Law in Ohio, where he teaches courses in constitutional 
administrative and environmental law. He is also a contributor to Washington Post's Volok blog. Jonathan H. Adler, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Good to be here. Great to have you. All right, I've been trying to make sense out of this seemingly self-defeating battle against vaping by uh, supposedly anti-smoking advocates and Democrats for some time. And I got to say, I find it really bizarre and really stupid and really antithetical to what so many anti-tobacco proponents claim to be fighting for. Uh, your study with Bruce Yandel, Roger Miners, uh, and Andrew Morris provides an interesting perspective on this whole thing. Uh, so first, explain to me, what is the Baptists and bootleggers theory that you are citing here? Because I think it's fascinating, it's apropos, and, and I think it's one that I actually hadn't understood previously. Well, sure. So the, the theory, uh, the Baptists and bootleggers theory, which uh, my co-author Bruce Yandel first uh, developed after uh, his time working at the Federal Trade Commission, is the idea that when we see uh, social regulation, what we often see is a constellation of interest groups in support of that regulation that come from very different perspectives. Um, that typically you see groups that have something to gain financially, but that you also see groups that are motivated by more a moral vision of the way the world should be. So the story that Bruce first told is a story of what would happen in some dry counties uh, in the United States after Prohibition, mm -hmm. where um, Baptists would support continued restrictions on alcohol sales, mm -hmm. uh, but that bootleggers, those who uh, would transport alcohol from, from wet jurisdictions, those perhaps that might even be producing it illegally, would also support restrictions on alcohol because it suppressed competition and created opportunities for them to monopolize um, the, provi the, the provision of alcohol. Mm. And uh, the idea was that the bootleggers, while having very different ultimate goals than the Baptists, very different perspective from the Baptists, mm -hmm. could gain economic advantage by supporting a group that uh, had a moral message. And we see this sort of thing in, in politics all the time, where there are uh, economic interests, that stand to gain from supporting the, the work of a public interest group um, with which you might not think they have much uh, in common with. And, and one example that, that is relatively recent that got a lot of attention in the press mm -hmm. at the time um, is that it had been um, uh, disclosed that uh, a major natural gas company had been giving lots of money to the Sierra Club to support the Sierra Club's campaign against coal. And... One mm -hmm. reason why the natural gas company might have done that is natural gas and coal compete, um, and uh, n this natural gas producer saw benefits from policies that restrict uh, coal use because that could benefit uh, gas and, and give them a larger market share. So that's the, the so the idea is that behind the scenes, this sort of coalition or this sort of alliance, political alliance often exists. And it often results in a far more powerful political force mm. than either sort of group acting independently. It also means that sometimes the, the, the constellation of public interest groups that we see on an issue might in part be a function of who has support from economic interest groups. Right? So there may be a lot of groups that are concerned about the health effects of smoking, uh -huh. the health effects of tobacco use, it may well be that 
those that are critical of vaping and electronic cigarettes have more resources because they may be getting support from organization from from companies that benefit from restrictions on e-cigarettes, whereas those that may take a different approach may, that that may see e-cigarettes and vaping as a way of reducing the harms associated with nicotine addiction and tobacco use uh, may not have the same resources because they may might not have that sort of financial support. So it's the sort of thing when we look at these sorts of policy debates, we, 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 we want to be aware that this dynamic can occur, and we want to be on the lookout for evidence that, that this sort of thing is happening. And, and as you noted, the, the paper that I co-authored argues that we see some of this in the debate over what to do uh, with regard to electronic cigarettes and vaping. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting way to look at the issue. And, and, and you point out, uh, you know, as you note, in, uh, when it comes to uh, environmental issues, that money that was given by the natural gas uh, uh, industry to the Sierra Club, well, that was a place where I guess the, uh, the Sierra Club was happy to take that money because ultimately they can use it to help their own interests. So it was something that was more overt. Uh, and I don't know if, you know, during Prohibition... Well, actually, let me go back to that. During Prohibition, was this coalition between the uh, Baptists and bootleggers... I know it wasn't just Baptists, but, the you know, the religious folks who uh, were in favor of Prohibition. Was that coalition between them and the bootleggers, was that overt? Was that an agreement, or was that just something that they both had a shared interest in continuing Prohibition? You know, we, in different, with different examples, you see a, a different, different levels of overtness. Um, I know when, when Bruce Yandel first wrote about this, he talked about how some of the support might have simply been incidental. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the bootleggers may just have made sure that the collection plates were full um, without necessarily uh, telling the Baptists that that's where the money was coming from. Um, and so, so this sort of coalition can sometimes be mm. formal, where the groups are openly and consciously working together. In some cases, it may just be that they are aligned, um, and in some cases, uh, you know, it may be it may be subrosa or, or, or hidden. The other thing I should note is, um, just because a coalition like this exists doesn't necessarily mean the policy result is a bad one. I think you and I would agree in the, mm-hmm. in the context of vaping and electronic cigarettes, it's producing some questionable policy, but... You know, when when the government adopts a good policy, there may be companies that will benefit from that, mm-hmm. um, and we would expect them to have supported that policy. So, so one example that I, I I've, uh, that we give in the, the paper is um, uh, the phase out of chlorofluorocarbons mm-hmm. um, uh, because of the their environmental effects was encouraged uh, by Dupont once Dupont uh, uh, was in good position to to uh, have large market share in their in the replacements in their replacement chemicals. Uh, I think that was good. I think replace, I think phasing out CFCs mm-hmm. was a, environmentally a good thing to do. Um, but when you look historically at why that happened when it did, Dupont changing its position and putting its economic muscle behind that policy change really helped make mm-hmm. it happen. And and in terms of just understanding why environmental concerns suddenly had more effect in the process, seeing how economic interests were, were affected and, and the influence they had 
helps us understand the timing. Well, and I should note, by the way, that uh, Donald Trump completely disagrees with you, Jonathan Adler, about the uh, CFCs, uh, which has been made a uh, hairspray disaster ever since. <laughs> so just by way of being fair and balanced, I feel I need to point that out, uh, Jonathan. Uh, sure. So uh, in this case, uh, when, when, when it comes to uh, vaping, uh, so who are, who are the Baptists here and, and who are the bootleggers, as you sure. see it, in, in, your, uh, in your paper and in your uh, explanation of this? So the Baptists are a large portion of the anti-tobacco health-oriented groups mm-hmm. um, in the United States um, for a variety of reasons that I'm not sure I, I even completely understand. Most of the anti-tobacco groups in the United States have what I would characterize as a prohibitionist mindset um, where, the, where their, their goal has to be eliminating all tobacco use. Um, that's, that stands in contrast to groups in other countries. I know you mentioned England earlier. Um, in England, for example, a lot of the anti-tobacco groups have what we would characterize as a harm reduction approach. Their mm-hmm. view is you don't just make something go away overnight. You try and advance public health one step at a time by, among other things, finding less dangerous alternatives. Um, but in this country, there are a lot of groups that that um, have this prohibitionist mindset. And and to be fair, um, given their experience, or I guess our experience collectively with the tobacco industry and a lot of its tactics over the years, it's understandable why anti-tobacco groups would be distrustful of corporate interests mm-hmm. um, selling um, products that that satisfy. Uh, nicotine addiction, but but the 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 bootleggers here uh, yeah. <laughs> would be would be big tobacco, and they seem to be in favor of this uh, prohibition as well on uh, on vaping products because it's going to help them. And yet the Democrats don't seem to notice that or right, something. Well, the story we, we, we you see, or you know, certainly the, the story that's told by by policymakers is often that restricting electronic cigarettes is necessary. To prevent big tobacco from reemerging um, with new products, um, of course, the, the the real story is is that big tobacco has thus far been a relatively small player in the electronic cigarette market. They've they've tried in the last couple of years to make larger inroads, acquiring uh, e-cigarette manufacturers and the like. Um, and, and, let, and let me just jump in here to add, yeah. Jonathan, uh, the big tobacco, the e-cigarettes uh, that they make are crap, and people should <laughs> not use them. I know you won't say that, but I'm going to say that they are crap. People should not use them. There's no reason to support big tobacco when you've got mom-and-pop shops uh, making actual products that are good and actually work. Okay, press on with what you were well, saying, Jonathan. So, I mean, there's two things, right? So you have um, this e-cigarette market, and... Um, uh, Financial analysts that do work on the tobacco industry have been pointing out for years now um, this is a um, uh, a challenge to the traditional tobacco market because it's a way for people uh, who are addicted to nicotine, who otherwise like nicotine, mm-hmm. who have other reasons to to use um, uh, a tobacco products, an alternative that has, as best we can tell, much, much, much lower health consequences. Right. Uh, the, the, the British estimate is 5% of the risk. Uh, it may even be lower than that. Right. Um, and uh, on top of that, uh, because it's a market built up of so many small players, uh, particularly if you're talking about vaping pens and the vaping and mod part portion of the market mm-hmm. where, you, where there's been lots of rapid growth, 
it's a market that's evolving very quickly because there's lots of competition between lots of small companies that are trying to innovate to develop a better product. Um, and for a large company with a lot of market share, that's scary, right? So for a Philip Morris or an R.J. Reynolds, mm-hmm. the idea that there's a lot of innovation and that somebody new is going to come out of nowhere with a new new way of uh, new product design mm-hmm. that's going to challenge the status quo is scary. They're kind of like big dinosaurs, and they're afraid of all these small mammals running around because they're afraid one of them is going to take off and 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 outcompete them. Um, and even in the in the the, the e-cigarette market of, of kind of traditional e-cigarettes or, or what some call sigalikes, you've seen an incredible amount of dynamism in the market each year. Yeah. A different company's on top. Um, a, a lot of effort to develop something new, and and this has been been very hard for uh, the larger companies to um, to, to uh, uh, deal with. So they have been very supportive of the FDA regulation. The major tobacco companies asked and supported the FDA's proposals to regulate e-cigarettes. Indeed, Philip Morris is largely credited with helping to write the statute uh, under which these regulations were adopted. Which the, is the, amazing to me. I mean, because yes. they can afford uh, the, the, you know, the. it's been estimated that it'll cost about a million dollars per product per flavor per uh, nicotine level per battery per drip tip everything they make now i don't know if that number is true uh but that's what the you know the vaping uh, folks uh, are saying right it looks like it'll cause it well there's a bunch of reasons why this advantages them one is is that um these rules apply to any product that was not on the market prior to 2007 Mm -hmm. uh, which means virtually all electronic cigarettes there are a handful of of some that were really early that 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 aren't very good compared to um, compared to to, to current models mm-hmm. uh, that would be grandfathered, but e-cigarettes have now this new barrier. Um, traditional tobacco products do not. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that respect, this regulates e-cigarettes more simply than cigarettes. So that's one benefit for the tobacco companies. The second benefit is is they have the resources to pay for um, uh, this approval process. Mm-hmm. The third way it benefits them is that it slows innovation, which means they have less to fear from the new product, the new product design coming out of nowhere, because there will be that much fewer of them. Big tobacco. Big tobacco has less to fear. Right, right, right. right. In, in general, um, the largest players in a market um, benefit from regulations that make it harder for new entrants to to, to join the market. And, and look, I got to point out, I take no joy here in calling out Democrats uh, for, for doing exactly what it is, frankly, that Republicans often claim, often, I believe, disingenuously, the Democrats are doing. But in this case, they literally seem to be using big government to uh, try at least to regulate an industry out of business. Uh, I mean, it sure looks like what the, that's what they're doing. And trying to make sense of reasons why, uh, you know, I hate, you know, I, I'm angry because they make me just sort of look at these uh, things that might be considered conspiracy theories. You know, where the money is flowing. Uh, you've got uh, FDA's present commissioner, uh, Dr. Robert Califf. Uh, he's represented nearly every pharmaceutical giant with a smoking cessation device on the market. Monica yep. Showalter notes. Uh, the uh, chief tobacco regulator at the FDA, Mitch Zeller, 
uh, helped craft the uh, 2009 Tobacco Control Act while working as a lobbyist and consultant for GlaxoSmithKline, which is a huge name in the nicotine industry that uh, Big Pharma brings forward. That's right. You have all because you, you certainly all, you also have uh, uh, what are often referred to as NRTs, nicotine replacement therapies, mm-hmm. various products that have gone through the FDA approval process as smoking cessation devices. Now it turns out for most smokers, um, these these uh, uh, products are not very helpful. Um, the, the successful smoking cessation rates are very low. Um, the ones, that, the no ones made by the, you, you mean the ones made by the big pharma group, the patches yeah, so the and the gums, the, gums, the yeah. inhalers, the patches, mm-hmm. um, and there are a bunch of reasons for that. I mean, one is uh, you know for many people, nicotine is a very addictive substance. That's hard, and that's an addiction that can be hard to conquer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, I mean, as a former smoker, I think you would understand that that the habits that one develops around smoking, the the holding of the cigarette, the mm-hmm. the, the, the inhaling on it, the the time of day one is used to doing that after a meal, whatever. Um, those habits themselves reinforce the addiction to cigarettes. An e-cigarette or a vaping pen for many smokers can help replicate those behaviors in a way that a patch can't, Not that even a gum cannot. And on top of that, um, um, it's far more easy, far easier for a, a tobacco user to uh, regulate their nicotine consumption um, even unconsciously, with something mm-hmm. like an e-cigarette or a vaping pen, much harder to do so with a patch that you stick on your arm and that kind of pumps a steady flow of nicotine into your blood. And it's and also so- harder to do uh, than with a regular cigarette where you have no idea how much nicotine you're getting. Right. It's very difficult to, if not impossible, to ramp down in the you know the the nicotine level, which you can do. Sure. You can ramp down to zero with with e-cigarettes. Sure. Uh, so. Does so we've got just a few minutes left here, uh, Jonathan. Uh, anti-tobacco. Uh, there, there's so many uh, ironies here, uh, and and as much as I hate disagreeing with, <laughs> or actually I hate agreeing with Republicans about these uh, regulatory issues, I even more. Uh, hate agreeing with get ready Rush Limbaugh who has <laughs> who has for years argued that you know uh, that cigarette taxes fund health care uh, and uh, the ironically enough anti tobacco uh, folks are now actually funded by big tobacco through these yes. agreements with the tobacco companies so do you know are you able to tell. Is that what is at play here? Is this consciously at play? By do Democrats understand this, or are are Democrats sort of uh, being played and they have no idea what's going on? I, I'm yeah, trying to make sense of it. It's a good question. I should note, though, that certainly at the state level, policymakers—I um, would say mostly Democrats, but not exclusively Democrats—are yeah. um, uh, well aware that as e-cigarettes take away from cigarette sales. That reduces their tax revenue. Yep. And the groups that get some of this money are aware that that reduces their funding stream. And so what we're beginning to see at the state level is efforts to tax electronic cigarettes like regular cigarettes are, are taxed, um, like tobacco is taxed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the arguments are, well, it's fair and it'll discourage their use. The problem, of course, though, is that if you make electronic cigarettes more expensive, you will reduce their appeal to smokers. One appeal electronic cigarettes have right now is that in most jurisdictions, uh, they are less expensive uh, than, than tobacco mm-hmm. products. 
And so in addition to the health benefits, in addition to the other benefits, your clothes don't smell, whatever else, it, it also can save a smoker money to make that switch. Um, efforts to impose taxes on them will eliminate that advantage. The other thing that this is very worrisome, and there, there are two new studies out about this that, that is a parent concern me. Um, there are two studies showing now that when restrictions are imposed upon electronic cigarettes, they either make them harder to get or make them more expensive. Teen smoking rates go up. Mm. And again, as a parent, yeah. you know, I, I don't want my daughters doing either. I mean, mm-hmm. right, you know, uh, if they never get a taste for nicotine, all the better. But the idea that we could adopt policies in the name of public health that increase teen smoking rates yep. should really be frightening. And, and whether it's because people are bought off, because they, they see the tax revenue and they can't, they can't resist, or because they're just, they're just you know, blinded by the public health rhetoric and don't understand the issue well enough, you know, and, and my guess is, depending on who you're talking about, it's probably different in each case. There's probably a mix of all of that going on. But it's very worrisome to me that, that these sorts of policies, that those sorts of consequences could be adopted in the name of public health um, you know, it'll benefit certain powerful interest groups, uh, but won't have the health benefits that, in fact, uh, could have some very serious negative health consequences. Uh, well, I, you know, I thank you for your report on this, uh, Professor Adler. I hope you will continue to cover. I hope you'll con- uh, cover it over at the uh, Volok conspiracy at Washington Post if you haven't already. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, it's got conspiracy in the name, so you might as well start detailing uh, what the hell is going on, because it, it really is amazing. And you you pointed to, you know, the fact that you see, uh, you know, more uh, kids turning to cigarettes in places where they are restricting vaping. It just blows my mind, never mind the, you know, half a million adults each year that, that die in this country now unnecessarily. Uh, and, and Democrats out there making it harder. It's insane. It makes my head spin. But your uh, your report, Baptist Bootleggers and E-Cigarettes, uh, as published at Case Western uh, University last year and uh, soon to be updated in the uh, uh, the Yale uh, Yale Journal of Regulation. Uh, maybe, maybe that'll start to help people see what the hell is going on here. Hope so. As I try to figure it out. By the way, in, in your uh, paper, I should note, concludes that if the new FDA uh, rules and other proposed restrictions on vaping move forward as currently planned, quote, the tobacco Baptists and bootleggers will have further extended their reach and the free market innovation and public health will have lost. For the sake of human health and freedom of choice, the innovations of smoking alternatives such as e-cigs should be welcomed, not chilled. I couldn't agree more. Professor Jonathan H. Adler, uh, professor of law and director of the Center for Business Law and Regulation at Case Western Reserve University School of Law in Ohio. Great speaking with you today, Professor. Uh, I'll look forward to doing it again in the future as we fix this problem. We can do it. Certainly can try. We're going to work on it. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Jonathan Adler. And I will link to both his uh, his study and this great article uh, by uh, by Monica Showalter at the um, American Media Institute called Hot Air. Democrats work with big tobacco and big pharma to choke the vaping industry. All right. I'm Brad Friedman. We are back with more broadcast right after this. Stay tuned. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. 
Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so now more than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going or even just a one-time-only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. And thanks. Oh, it's just one of those days, Desi Doyen. <laughs> melting with me or melting down? Oh, melting down, yes. Everything <laughs> making me angry, uh, including the fact that I'm running short on time. So we have to get to it. Our latest Green News report. I just declared a state of emergency in 34 counties. So it's going to impact, uh, you know, pretty much our, our entire state. Tropical storm Colin batters Florida as Paris begins to dry out. As crews got busy removing crude oil from derailed tanker cars, the trains kept coming. Oil train explodes in Oregon. Company keeps running trains right by it. Alaska wildfires now significant contributor to global warming. Chile has so much solar energy, it's giving it away. Plus, I think that the vast majority of Americans are libertarian. It's just that they don't know it. The Libertarian Party has its presidential nominee. We have his position on climate change. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Donald Trump, this is going really over well at California, he said that we have no drought. (laughs) You saw that, right? He said we have no drought. Uh, You know those dead patches in the middle of your lawn? Okay, here's what you do. Just take the grass and comb it over from the back and the side. (laughs) This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, oil trains exploding, tropical storms coming ashore, people dying from floods, droughts, and everything else. Feels like I've been here before. (laughs) It may sound familiar, yes. In Florida, Governor Rick Scott has declared a state of emergency as heavy rains from tropical storm Colin hit across much of Florida. We're going to see the potential for flooding across the Sunshine State. So around the Tampa area here, easily six to eight inches of heavy rain, depending how quickly the storm system moves. The official hurricane season started on June 1st, but Colin already broke a record. It's the earliest ever in the season to become the third named storm. In Paris, floodwaters have begun to recede. Priceless art and antiquities had to be evacuated from the Louvre Museum and the Musée d'Orsay after torrential rainstorms triggered massive flooding on the iconic Seine River. Flooding across Western Europe over the last week has killed at least 15 people and displaced thousands. Recent studies project that climate change-related flooding in Europe will double by 2050. 
Meanwhile, in Oregon, the national debate over explosive oil trains was reignited on Friday. I see what you did there. When yet another oil train carrying extremely flammable Bakken shale crude oil derailed and burst into flames in the town of Mosier, Oregon, in the Columbia River Gorge. The town was evacuated. Its water and sewage system were damaged. No cause yet for the accident, but Union Pacific Railroad officials on Monday ignored a request from the Mosier City Council to delay, instead choosing to reopen the line, deeply angering residents like Brett Vanden Heuvel of the Columbia Riverkeepers. Keepers. cars in the distance still have oil in them, and uh, they're running trains. It's unbelievable that they're sacrificing public safety to get this going. You know, the river's not cleaned up, the soil's not cleaned up, the sewage treatment plant doesn't work, but, you know, good gracious, they're going to start these trains. On Monday, Oregon Governor Kate Brown and other state leaders called for a moratorium on oil trains going through the Columbia River Gorge. The oil must keep flowing. It must keep flowing. It must keep flowing. The spike in wildfires in Alaska is entering a feedback loop, according to the U.S. Geological Survey, making global warming even worse. In a new study, the survey finds that Alaska's record wildfire season in 2015 has already had a measurable effect on the atmosphere, releasing carbon dioxide and methane that were once stored in forests and permafrost. The USGS says Alaska's wildfires should be recognized now as a significant contributor to climate change. Mm, That is not good news at all. The nation of Chile is now generating so much solar energy that it's giving it away for free. That's good news. Well, that may sound like a great problem to have, but it highlights the problem of new energy on electric grids. Chile's electric grid infrastructure isn't connected between regions, meaning renewable energy that they're generating in one region can't get to where it's needed in another region, undercutting the profitability of Chile's renewable energy industry over fossil fuels. Finally, I was remiss last week in not reporting that the Libertarian Party has nominated former New Mexico Governor Gary Johnson as their presidential candidate. On climate science, Johnson is somewhat more evolved than the Republican Party. (laughs) He says he accepts that climate change is man-made, but like the Republican Party, Johnson is against action by governments, believing instead that the free market, quote, will ultimately bring about the environmental restoration and protection society desires. The oil must keep flowing. The oil must keep flowing. The oil must keep flowing. Thank you, Desi Doyen, for much more on those stories and the ones we couldn't get to. Check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, to my guest today, Jonathan H. Adler of Case Western University and of Washington Post. My thanks, of course, to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or any other, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. Leave a comment. Let us know what you think about the show one way or another. Always glad to hear from you. Um, and, oh, find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters, where it's been very lively lately. You can find me there. I am the Brad Blog, Or you can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. 
full election results on our next thrilling broadcast out of California, New Jersey, North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, and New Mexico, and much, much more. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.